most people are good and like have good ambitions for the world and like want things to uh, be better. And so the goal is not to just scream at someone when you disagree with them. It's to figure out what values you share. And uh, in the case of advocating for Bitcoin, for example, showing how Bitcoin leads to those values. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler but I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy, Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? 
Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. You can vape during the show. Thank I, you. I don't yeah. mind. Like, well, uh, you, you, know, you were actually a relatively meaningful part uh, of me fully quitting like uh, the Marlboro Reds. Yeah, but you're like 15 years old and smoking Marlboro <laughs> Reds, for fuck's sake, dude. Like, yeah, I, it, was, it was dark. They're the, they're the brutal I, cigarettes. They're awful, yeah. yeah. I'm not like a... I, I could give you some convoluted argument of like the it's actually riskier to vape than to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> but like, I'm not sure I fully believe it, but the argument is that uh, one of my friend's uh, older brothers is an actuary, really smart guy, went to like MIT, studied math. And so they take these like really complex equations uh, to figure out how long someone's going to live and try to like price in their insurance. Uh, and we have enough data because people have been smoking cigarettes for so long. Like we we know almost exactly how bad they are for you. And it's, it's bad. Don't get me wrong, but we, it's a pretty like known risk. Whereas vaping, it could be significantly less bad for you, but the upper bound is like way, way higher because people have been vaping for, you know, five, six, maybe 10 years. But, uh, in some ways, yeah, you could actually say that the acoustic cigarette is, uh, Less risky than the electronic one. Well, I, I took up vaping to give up cigarettes, but I used to smoke like two a day and then maybe on the weekend like 10 a day. And apparently the amount I vape now is the equivalent of like 20 to 40 cigarettes a day. Oh, God, so it never leaves me. Yeah, it's it's not something that I like in, enjoy, you know? Like it's... it's. Should we give up together? How about we could. this show is the final time we vape, and the end of the show I, we throw them in the bin. I cannot commit to that. I tell you, we'll put them under the tap. Uh, we'll spend tonight. We'll, we'll be out together tonight. Yeah. So we can't vape. We'll get through it together. How about we do that? Yeah, I am so good at coming up with reasons to not quit because you know I've quit like multiple times for you know anywhere from like two weeks to at my longest like you know three or four months, but. Now I'm just so busy. Like Bitcoin moves so fast. I've got so much shit going on that every time I start to build up that courage, I'm like, can I afford to feel like a sack of shit for the next like 90 hours? And usually there's some event in the next like three days that I'm like, oh no, okay, I can't be going through withdrawal for that. I'll just wait. And then how about we game it? How about we both give up uh -huh. at the end of this show and the first person to crack owes the other person a Bitcoin? Holy crap. So then you've basically, you know, if you're going to smoke again, it's, it's just, cost, it's like going to cost you $44,000. $44, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's intense. I'm not going to commit to that now, but I'm very, that would probably get me to quit smoking. I'm not going to give you a fucking Bitcoin. <laughs> I think that would help me. Yeah, no, I. Or I'd lie. Yeah. The only way I would see myself getting rid of a Bitcoin. I was, I was looking at bunkers recently. <laughs> it was just kind of like pricing out, like, you know how that's not. Dude, I did Bitcoin the research. Bitcoin for a bunker could maybe, but I don't know how much I want to live in a bunker. I did the research. I, did, I Googled like the nuclear fallout from a London and, and Bedford is just on the edge. Yeah. So we, I think we just avoid the fallout. Right. Well, I was telling uh, you know Matthew Pines uh, that I was kind of stuck between either wanting to go 
do what Troy Cross is, said he was going to do and get an Airbnb in DC and just get like evaporated. Or I was going to like sell some Bitcoin, buy a bunker, like fully, you know, it was like very looking at this in the sort of stark binary. Like I either want to get incinerated or I'm going to like have a bunker. Cause what I don't want to do is, you know, just die from third degree burn, like radiation burns like a week later. Yeah. Right. Or killed by like marauders. And then Matthew Pines was like, you're a fucking moron. That's not how nuclear war works. Like there's a very good chance that you would survive and not all of the scenarios lead to the destruction of the human race, even if we go nuclear. I was thinking about it with regards to Bitcoin as well. Like, if there was a nuclear war, just say it happened. Yeah. We're talking like we fucking got stoned. But um, if <laughs> if we uh, if there was, would Bitcoin be the thing you're glad you, you've got or would it be completely worthless? Because we're, we're a small community now relative. Mm. If you suddenly went into this kind of like different world where like there's no planes flying, there's limited society... When you're trying to like survive on that. Like, what what are people going to want? Are they going to want stuff? Bullets, bullets. Yeah, tin pineapple, nine millimeter. Probably yeah. be very good currency. But like, would Bitcoin have? Well, people are like, I don't give a fuck about Bitcoin now. I need bullets. I need like, will, will we go to barter economy? Yeah, hard to say. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, and, and I feel like the answer would change in like five or ten years too. It depends on I think what the general prognosis was of a return to civilization. Like yeah. if people think, okay, this is going to be an awful couple, like two years, um, but we will recover. Um, then yeah, you probably get some really cheap sats. But if the prognosis is that it's all over, like this experiment in complex technologically enabled civilization is just gone. I don't know what you're big. Like, I, I think most people who aren't Bitcoiners would much rather be paid in, in bullets or, or something with like an immediate practical use to them Maybe, not in the uk it'd probably be f- like forks <laughs> <laughs> baseball bats baseball bats forks knives yeah. spoons yeah that's the weapons we would have it's a weird time it's it's a really weird time because um we're either in a scenario where it's just a single war in ukraine and that's gonna turn out to be whatever it is whether it's russia's afghanistan or or something they pull back and just steal a bit more territory. Who, know, who knows? Or we're at the start of like a, a European war that spreads into other countries. I've got no idea. I don't know. Um, but it's a weird time because uh, I never... It feels like the most significant war in some ways mm. of my lifetime because you don't know where it's going. Uh, but I never thought I'd live through something like this. It's definitely the highest probability of like nuclear war that we've seen in Europe. Um, I would be more, I'm like more thinking about cyber right now than I am nukes though. Like my nuke scenario is that if Putin, uh, uh, fails to make progress in Ukraine or uh, is even beaten back, like there's a scenario I can imagine where he drops like a tactical nuke, say on Chernobyl, doesn't even kill anyone. It's just the equivalent of like firing a gun up in the air. And Putin basically says to Zelensky, like, look, like call my fucking bluff. Like you're not NATO. I'm a crazy person with a lot of nukes. I will destroy your 14th largest city and vaporize it if you don't surrender. And I will move up from there. And at a certain point, like you kind of just have to, to give up there. But with, with cyber, it's way, way more likely in my mind. Cause we don't have very specific like escalation ladders for that. Like so much of the cold war was spent where, the United States and, and Russia were basically going back and forth between each other saying, you know, if you do this, we'll do this. If you do this, we'll do this. With cyber, 
uh, those lines in the sand for like retaliation aren't as clearly drawn. Uh, and attribution is really tough. Um, you never really know with certainty where a cyber attack came from. So we may see like a, an attack on our financial system in response to sanctions. And, you know, Putin comes out and is like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> These random hackers hacked you. Like we should have a, a joint summit on cybersecurity to make sure this never happens again. And then America is like, no, that was obviously you. And then we respond. And then Russia's like, holy crap, you just cyber attacked us for no reason. And that tree of escalation is is what I'm kind of thinking through on like the bad ends of, you know, sort of the, the spectrum of possibilities, like the bad possibilities. That's where my mind goes. Have you read the book, the This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, Nicole Perlroth, I think her name is. No, I haven't. So that's all about cyber attacks. Hmm. Um, and it's, you know, interestingly opens, the first chapter is about the cyber attacks on Ukraine, back in 2014. Mm. We're trying to get her on the show, actually. We want to talk to her about it. That would be um, cool. But I th the fact that you're more worried about that and that's her book discusses that is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Uh, uh, I, I don't know. There's a certain yeah. point where I, I just can't think about stuff like that. Like, I, I'm at the point where I'm, I am thinking about, like, bugging out um, I'm not there yet though. Right. It's like, I'm in the sort of stage of like recognizing that there is a point in the near future that I can see happening where I'm like, all right, I got to go. I got to go to an undisclosed location in the Southeastern United States yeah. and chill for a while. It, it's also really hard to know what the truth is anymore about anything. And when you opine on it on Twitter, <laughs> any, any opinion you take, there's people with a counter opinion. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I'm pretty certain Putin is a psychopath. Yeah, and I don't think, I don't think you sh you should be blaming NATO for his decision to invade a country and drop bombs across it. Now you can say it's part of the process that led to it, but he, he has still made that decision to invade a sovereign country and attack it. But you get this real massive confuse uh, of replies that that can spin you into confusion. It's like, oh shit. Am I wrong? And then I'm like, fuck, am I spreading misinformation? Like I shared a photo and it turns out the photo was from like a year ago. And and you're like, I, I don't have the time to fact check every th single thought I have. Right. And then it's like, well, maybe I shouldn't be even opining on it. Then maybe I should just shut the fuck up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird because in some ways, you know, we are the most connected to like war and violence that we've ever been. I mean, you go on Twitter and you see like dead bodies and stuff. Um, and yeah, there's this information overload where you have no idea what's true or what isn't. But the question of whether or not we have more or less information about war now than we used to is pretty interesting. And, and I would still say that even through the disinformation, we probably do. Because um, I'm thinking about like Vietnam, right? Where there were like three news stations and it wasn't until Walter Cronkite was like, yo, we're, we're losing. Like the government is kind of lying to us. Like this is not going to be a quick war. This we're, we're not about to, to win. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're, if, if your options are either centralized state media that just tell you exactly what's happening and what's going on, uh, or a million different independent outlets that are all telling you different things. It's, it's not fun, but I'd still prefer to sift and try to make my best call than to be limited in the information that I'm getting prima facie. Like one of my friends is from China. He's like an exchange student. Uh, and I was talking to him recently and the Chinese media on this is nuts. 
I mean, he, he he's in an interesting spot because he's in America. And so he's consuming American news and he's consuming like Chinese news. And they're all saying the same stuff that we did about Iraq. Right. Uh, Putin is is liberating people. This will be a quick war. Uh, and they're saying that, like, they're only reporting Ukrainian casualties, uh, according to, to my friend. Uh, they, they're just talking all the time about the Ukrainians that are dying. Very little mention of Russian casualties. Everyone is saying that this is going to be uh, a quick, quick conflict. Um, so, yeah. Well, so I, I spoke to a friend of mine uh, last week. His wife is Russian. Um, they live in uh, the UK. Uh, and he said uh, he's overheard his wife on on the phone to her mother who's in Russia. And he said it's nuts the things that she's relaying back to him because uh, they only have state-controlled TV now. They don't have independent... They closed down the only uh, remaining independent news channel. They've banned Facebook. I think I've just seen today as 15 years in jail for spreading what they consider misinformation or lies about what's going on in the war. But she's she is very much along the lines of like uh, uh, completely on the the Nazis within Ukraine and that uh, Putin is defending Russia from the expansion of Nazis in the Ukraine. And like, I'm not saying that isn't an issue. You know, that battalion, Azor battalion, I think it is. Uh, Majid has been talking a lot about that. Yeah. You know, there's clearly uh, a Nazi influence in that battalion. They've clearly been funded by the state. But I don't see how, I, from my side, it's like a really tricky thing because you're like, well, I completely disagree with Nazis and Nazism, but at the same time, that that wasn't enough of a pretext for war. Yeah, but I don't know. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm a guy with a Bitcoin podcast. Maybe I should <laughs> shut the fuck up about all these. Well, they get me in trouble anyway. Yeah, because you know the cohort of people. Well, there's a number of cohorts in Bitcoin, but there's a certain cohort where where I maybe don't get along with them so well. Yeah, I mean, it's also a, a warning, right? Um, talking about Russia uh, limiting all the information. Like, I, I'm i too young for this, but I've gone back and read a lot of the early sort of advocacy for the internet, um, <laughs> all, all the way down from like... Uh, uh, You're too young for it. Well, no, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm 22. Dude, dude, we saw that you just you, you were introduced to Bitcoin in seventh grade. <laughs> Yeah, Daddy was, was the seventh grader. Daddy was like, David can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like there was uh, uh, sort of starting with the really early evangelists of the internet, uh, all, all the way up to the uh, uh, kind of like intelligentsia, like the Harvard, you know, uh, the internet will end authoritarianism. The internet will, uh, uh, I mean, there were just so many claims about how, yeah, the internet would usher in this sort of democratic revolution. And in some ways, yes, but then you have state capture. Um, my bet is that Bitcoin will be harder to capture by the state than the internet was for a lot of reasons. Um, but it's something that we could definitely like get into. Are you, are you saying the internet has been captured by the state? Because it certainly has been in places like Russia and China, where they have complete control over it. And to some extent, you could argue we've seen some form of state capture of the internet within Canada recently. I would say it's everywhere. It's it's down to the the sort of like, you know, protocol layer. Like you and I can't buy into TCP IP. Uh, we can buy Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, but, but does, does state capture of the internet mean you have state capture of Bitcoin in some ways? Not necessarily. But if the state can shoot you for tweeting something that they don't like, 
state can shoot you for making a Bitcoin transaction that they don't like. And I think that's a scary reality. Um, obviously, that's it's not a I don't want to be super uh, uh, overly broad here. Right. There are ways to drastically increase Bitcoin privacy. But if fundamentally, you know, a Bitcoin transaction is uncensorable, um, it's not going to necessarily protect you from the people that have the monopoly on violence. And like your point, we're seeing that in, in Canada. Um, so that, that makes me think like, are we like sometimes in Bitcoin guilty of causing the same problems by not being like open enough to free speech? You and I've talked about this. Uh, are we guilty of creating our kind of like own echo chambers and mm. our own forms of like speech restriction by there's a certain amount of kind of attempts at canceling within Bitcoin if you don't follow a particular mindset. Uh, but if we're like, if we're a group of people who believe that this technology, this monetary technology we've created can you know, solve so many problems in the world, like we want to invite everyone. In. Like we've got Margot sat here with us who I've just recorded a show with, you know, she would be considered somebody on the left who's a progressive. We have people in the middle, people on the right. We should, should we be having the most wide range conversations possible and looking at how Bitcoin can solve problems across all of society and all of the political spectrum rather than like, I feel like we are guilty of creating echo chambers. And I say we, as there are certain groups, I, I would say I'm, I try not to do it, but I can be guilty of it. Yeah. I think there's, gosh, there's so much that goes into that, right? Cause on the one hand, um, Bitcoiners have been right for a very long time. And so something that I do try to keep in mind uh, is that if you have been criticized, called an idiot, told that you're falling for a Ponzi scheme, told things that you know to be wrong, not like just on the protocol layer, um, I can understand why after a decade that starts to Ill. I mean, you see any criticism of Bitcoin and it's like, fuck you, you don't get it, you're an idiot. Um, and so I do think that is a, a challenging environment uh, to be critical, not of Bitcoin, but to be cognizant of the flaws, to be cognizant of where there's room for Im improvement. I think like Odell does a really good job of this, right? Like mm. he is obviously a Bitcoiner. But he doesn't just sit there and say, if you make a transaction on Bitcoin, no one can stop you and like you'll be totally fine. Like he's a huge privacy advocate. And so people like that are good in, in the space. And I do think that sometimes well-intentioned critique, like to your point, is super important for, for anything. Well, uh, gets, Sale is great at this. Yeah. Because what I've noticed with him and, you know, there were, like lots of these interviews leave indelible marks on me, right? But what I've noticed with Sailor, like he talked to me a lot about focus in the last interview. And I get distracted by just like fucking around and memes and stuff. But I've noticed when, when there's like a, a solid criticism, you can go into, it can be somebody in the press, whatever, whoever it is. You, can, you click on it and the first thing you see, you see all the people you follow first because you know, they're Bitcoiners. And people are dogpiling in, memeing them, saying have fun, staying poor and all this bullshit. And then Sailor will come out with a really articulate, response to it and do we damage ourselves like shouting at somebody or memeing at somebody i don't think wins hearts and minds well, you just can't do it twitter is just not the platform for it but it can be because sailor's doing it Sail, sailor's doing it if you have an audience like sure um 
Twitter just doesn't lend itself to the nuance that a conversation about Bitcoin in good faith requires. Like the amount of times that I have taken uh, uh, like a debate or a conversation on someone with Twitter, I, I'll just DM people and be like, look, I am happy to get on a call, get on a Google meet, get on signal, get on email. I will like debate this topic until I'm blue in the face and I will hear you out on everything you want to say, but I'm not going to do it when we're constrained by, and I'm happy if you publish that later. It's not about being out of the public eye. It's just like, I'm not going to engage in a debate with you or be able to engage in a debate with you in good faith. If I'm limited to a hundred plus 160 characters, like well, also the reward mechanism of Twitter, you don't get Do- the dopamine hit. It's like, yeah, it doesn't reward you for articulate responses. It, it rewards you for shitting on people and like, dunking on them and and winning the art like you very rarely see people turn around and go you know what i was wrong you, i had to do it yesterday i was uh had a uh, an exchange going with the knuts van home with regards to first principles mm. and he's and i said i i, I always find the argument that oh, well if you if you uh, follow first principles you know you you would come to the same conclusion as me and i always hate that because it takes it takes, uh, 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 for example, he wants to talk, he wants the, went with the first principle was, is all coercion bad to deduce that all government is bad? And I don't think you can do that. And I don't think you should, because yes, when you say it's all coercion bad, like obviously you have to say yes, because otherwise you sound like a fucking evil bastard because you want to coerce people. But at the same time, that doesn't help with the, therefore having a debate around should there be government. I mean, so, so, sorry, sorry, I didn't make the point. <laughs> so anyway, when he said, like, if you come to first principles, I was like, oh, you can write two first principles that end up with the answers contradicting each other. And he said, like, and I turned around to Danny, we went to get juice, and I was like, actually, I don't know if you could. So I had to go, I had to reply and say, no, I'm, I'm wrong here. But you don't get that too often. People don't admit they're wrong or... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We we could get into it, but I mean, the the whole it just depends on what like ethical framework you're using, right? Like, let's to, get I mean, into it. The, the the trolley problem, like, is all coercion bad? Well, if you take like some sort of Kantian view, and you're like, no, we need to look at the thing in and of itself, then like, sure, we can all recognize that coercion is bad. But you know, if uh, uh I, you know, I don't I don't want to. It's going to sound kind of messed up, but if you were like David, I'm about to go commit some awful atrocity, and I'm going to hurt like a bunch of people. And I pulled a gun on you to keep you from doing that. Is that coercion like bad? I mean, I don't know. It just sort of depends on whether or not you're like, it's context dependent. And I don't think most people are like strict utilitarians or strict deontologists or, or whatever. Um, As far as like two principles or two first principles contradicting each other, like there's an example there. Uh, Coercion is bad. So, you know, you, you sort of lead down to the state, is bad. We shouldn't have the state. What if you also had a first principle that says, you know, um, when we can save a life, like we ought to, I I could see some contradictions there. People might disagree, but yeah, I don't know. Like those conversations can just be like really tough. A wonderful example of a conversation I would never try to have on Twitter, (laughs) not in a million years. Well, that's why, like, I I mean, I've got myself into shit on Twitter by getting, you know, I, I happily attack punchy subjects and then I'll happily debate it. Uh, and then Danny always turns around to me and says like, hey, why are you doing this? Like, do it on the podcast. Because when you're on the podcast, you get to have the back and forth. You get to articulate your response. You're not restricted by uh, characters. You can um, explain yourself. You don't, there's no dopamine here. 
there's no dunking. It's just like you, you you never have a conversation like this and the other person's like trying to fuck you and dunk on you. Like it's always a good conversation. He's like, you can be so much more effective than they're on Twitter. You can't, you, he says like you basically can't win on Twitter. And he's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I would pretty much agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I just got dunked on Twitter. Thanks, by the way. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I did too. It's okay. You got, I got way more dunked on than you. Yeah, well, I just didn't realize, I, I just forgot how many people love like Joe Rogan and hate you. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, it was just like a meme tweet. Like, you know, is Peter McCormick the Joe Rogan of Bitcoin? Like, yeah, like we said you know earlier, like, you know, you're kind of the stand-in for the everyman. You have a broad range of guests. You let people say their ideas. Like, it's a reasonable question. But, you know, it's, I, I was not at all prepared for the, for the reaction. Uh, Cause yeah, people fucking hate you and people <laughs> fucking love Joe Rogan. Wow. So it was like an attack on Joe Rogan, which there, was yeah. by virtue an attack on, on them. There are people who hate Joe Rogan as oh, well. Oh sure, yeah. And there are a few people who like my show, but, but not, yeah, look, it's an interesting, uh, I mean, look, these are Bitcoiners who love Joe Rogan and like hate me. Right. Um, but, and, and I don't know why, yeah, there's a range of reasons they might dislike me, but um, he he's he's a statist as well. You know, he believes in democracy. He's a voter. He said he would have voted for Bernie. He didn't in the end. I think he voted um, for what's her name, Joe, the libertarian lady. But like Jorgensen, yeah, Joe Jorgensen. Yeah. Um, he probably is a little. I'm probably follow the mainstream narrative a bit more, whereas he is a bit more kind of like contrarian. But at the same time, I think he also has lunatics on his show that spread absolute bullshit unchallenged. Like, yeah. It's a, well, it's you're a, also representing Bitcoin in a lot of ways. Like, for better or worse, like, you are going to be under a microscope by passionate Bitcoiners more than Joe Rogan is because, uh, you know, I, I'm sure if Joe Rogan said stuff about Bitcoin that people didn't like, I mean, you know, this community kills its heroes. Like, Joe Rogan would be done. Well, they, um, they did Tim Pool the other day because he had he was had Majid on. Oh, he yeah. He got some things wrong about Bitcoin, and they <laughs> the were they were going to said like the crazy stuff about like you know if you have fifty percent of the the nodes you can hard for like it, it was I don't remember what he it was something along those lines. Yeah, I don't um, remember what he said. It but, was like word salad. Like yeah. whatever he said, just like didn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a. I used to like Tim Pool. I'm yeah. not a Tim Pool fan anymore. And I just don't listen to it. I mean, but I, I think he said some interesting things. I think he gets some other things wrong. But I think he's, it, it comes back to this point, actually. I think he has been trapped by audience capture, which is something like I massively try and avoid with this show. Despite the fact it really pisses people off, I'm like, I am not just going to follow the hardcore libertarian Bitcoin uh, narrative because one, I, find, I, don't, I don't agree with it. So it's not authentic to just, to follow it all the time. Uh, and, and secondly, like, I always want people to listen to the show and think, oh, I might not agree with Pete, but I know he's being honest. Audience capture is like, it's, it's there and it's tempting. You know, it's like this would be, this show would be a lot less stressful to make if I was just like, yeah, I'm a carnivore. Yeah, everything about government's bad. Burn it all fucking down. But like, I live in a safe country. I live in the UK, like a Western liberal democracy. It's a safe place that people are looked after by the state. Yeah. Uh, I've visited countries which are don't have those protections 
and are dangerous or people live in terrible conditions or they don't have access to education, they don't have access to healthcare. So like, I can't just pretend I want something to be, like the world to be a certain way when I actually think it, it wouldn't be that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. Um, I mean, I, I think more broadly, like just at 30,000 feet, regardless of what the sort of arguments are, uh, there's just very little value in cultivating a space where you can't disagree. Like that, that's, uh, what, what are you doing at that point? You know? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I just think that anytime, like there's a difference also between like vehemently disagreeing with someone, which is the point of free and open discourse. It's the, the point of free speech and deliberation is that you field all ideas and go, I mean, tear them to shreds. Yeah. Like that's, uh, you know, that's like a huge part of the history of this country. Um, like people act like political polarization uh, and is like something new. But, you know, you go back and look what the the, the founding fathers, right? I mean, it was, you would tear people apart in, in the press, right? You know, Hamilton would go out and say something and, and you know, Jefferson would be like, you're a fucking moron. Um, so that's, that's nothing new. What is so new, though, is how much people have lost sight of why it's really important that mm-hmm. disagreements happen publicly instead we've just sort of recede into these like echo chambers and you know this is not a novel thought i don't want to spend too much time on this but uh there is there's a significant danger in groupthink i think all bitcoiners would agree with that there's a significant danger in not platforming ideas like i I think all ideas should be platformed if even if for the purpose of just eviscerating them Mm -hmm. uh otherwise you're just you know, you're just wasting everyone's time. I mean, that, ha- that happened with us during COVID because there's definitely within the Bitcoin community a quite consistent uh, feeling towards lockdowns, mandates, and vaccinations. Yeah. Um, there's, all, there's little to no vocal support within people in Bitcoin saying, actually, I'm vaccinated and this is why. Very little. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I came... Out and said, I am. You're pro vaccine, anti mandate. I'm, I'm pro vaccine choice. Yeah. I'm pro the choice to get the vaccine. Um, and I'm against mandates because there's stuff we don't know, like stuff's coming out about the Pfizer research now that we didn't know at the time. But I was totally pro the choice to go and do it because what I what was in my mind was, are there people out there who perhaps should be vaccinated, who are now not getting vaccinated because they're stuck in a cohort which only tells them one thing. Because that's that's the danger of groupthink. You go on Twitter and you see all these people you follow, they're all you know the same cohort. They're all saying the same things like, oh, fuck, shit, I shouldn't get this because they're only hearing that one opinion. Whereas if you step out of it, if I go and hang out with my friends at home, they're nothing like Bitcoiners, absolutely nothing like it. And so I felt like this duty to come out and say, well, look, I'm getting vaccinated. This is my reason why. I don't believe in um, uh, mandates, yada, yada. But that came that came up with with a lot of risk because I've got a lot of shit. I got people. I probably lost listeners, which for, also, which is just so like. But if also, you're getting your medical information, like I hear you, and like, oh yeah, like you know, if you sort of take this stance, like, oh, the vaccines are really good, then does this? Dude, if you're getting your medical advice from Twitter, you're not going to make it anyway. Like, yeah. <laughs> vaccinated or not, whether or not you think the vaccine is good or bad, if you are are on the fence about a medical decision and you're just letting the shit that like random people say on Twitter influence your decision, dude, yeah, you're just not going to make but it. But I think that happens. Like, oh, I, I, I'm sure it, I'm sure it does. Um, and it's just, it's just bizarre, dude. Like that's, 
I don't want to talk about that. that's my medical decisions. Like, why does anybody in the world need to know what surgeries I've had, what medication I take, what vaccines I have or haven't had? Like, it, yeah, I don't know. It's just that to me, the whole vaccine thing is just like a deeply intimate and personal decision. Everyone's going to come to their own conclusions. Um, I, if, yeah, if you're, if you're letting stuff on Twitter change what you decide is the right path forward for, you know, there's a reason we have a doc doctors, you know, like I, this is an interesting conversation I had with uh, actually some Bitcoiners at our office recently. I was talking to uh, a few of the people in the magazine team and we were out of the bar across the street um, and, and we're sort of talking about, uh, well, they, they were sort of talking about uh, uh, we should replace, you know, politicians with sortition, right? Like with what? With sortition. It's like what they did in Venice where uh, uh, you, kind of cast lots and citizens get like randomly chosen um, to run the government. Um, and it's like a really interesting concept. And I understand like the immediate appeal and trust me, like I don't really think politicians are in any way better at making decisions than, than the average person. But what I kind of kept coming back to was, okay, this rejection of, of expertise does reach a point where it becomes very illogical like I want a carpenter to build my house and I want a heart surgeon to do my heart surgery. I have no interest in letting, you know, uh, a sortition decide who's going to operate on me. And I, I do think that that can be extrapolated to the government in some ways. Like uh, there are decisions uh, that require like expertise. Um, I'm not sort of advocating for some platonic like rule by experts. I mean, we've seen how expertise can be weaponized how expertise can be wrong, how expertise can kind of just be arbitrary words that rhetorically legitimate the preferences of, you know, whoever's really making the decisions. And it's all just a show. But at, at the other side of things, like, you know, I'm sure the construction of uh, a highway could be aided by someone who's an expert in studying traffic flows. Um, and so that was, it was just kind of an interesting conversation because there is this uh, uh, big facet of, of the Bitcoin community uh, that like, like the people in my office that I was talking to that like, it's just like, I, I have no interest in anyone other than like everyday people making these decisions. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, there are some decisions like surgery, you know, I, I want a doctor to make that. And so I don't know where that line goes up to the state. Cause, cause for me, the whole project of critiquing the state through like a libertarian lens, like at least for me personally, it, it's about figuring out what components of our current society are vestigial and which ones are like requisite. And I do think that like the overwhelming majority of, of the things that people are, are frustrated with uh, at the government for probably are vestigial and just don't make any sense. But yeah, there are like some core components where I'm like, if we're going to have a military, I would prefer uh, uh, someone with a military background running the military. I'd prefer someone with a transportation background, making decisions about, transportation. But of course, this is all in, in theory, because like I mentioned earlier, uh, it's not like we actually really listen to experts uh, very, very often. I mean, actually a great example. Uh, the experts have told us that roundabouts would save thousands of lives every year and save millions of dollars. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're cheaper. They save lives. I think it's like traffic roundabouts reduce traffic fatalities like 90 percent. Um, but of course, we don't have roundabouts. 
Uh, so I know it's so weird. Here. So all, all, all the experts can be like unified around a decision that doesn't actually mean that it's going to happen. So stop signs aren't the thing in the UK. And when I drive here, I just I find them so fucking annoying. I come to a, like a crossroads. There's no, I can see there's no cars, but I have to bring it to a stop. I'm like, well, give me no, a roundabout. So, so you are a statist, honestly. Give me a roundabout. Because when I see a stop sign, like I just, I just fucking run it. Red lights, those are suggestions. Stop signs, <laughs> stop signs are memes. Like, <laughs> There's, I mean, there is some like visceral part of me that gets to a stop sign where it's like one in the morning. I can clearly see all the other directions. And like, I am going to run that stop sign hundred percent of the time. Like I'm not going to just arbitrarily stop. Do my you car. slow to it? Context dependent. There are lots of things in that area to discuss. And, and that's why like I try and discuss them on this show and bring people on because Otherwise, it's just like you get people and say, yeah, I believe government's bad. You go, yeah, government's bad. And we just sit having this conversation. Everyone listening goes, yeah, government's bad. Bitcoin's good. Yeah, Bitcoin's good. The listeners, Bitcoin's good. Like, what progress we're making? Like, Bitcoin is has mass awareness. Every single person who, well, let's, you know, every person. Every person who's got the internet has heard of Bitcoin now. Yeah. Like, you don't meet somebody and say, oh, I work in Bitcoin. They go, well, what is that? Like, they're like, oh, shit. Like, I actually it, saw some some proprietary data on this. Um it's like 80, I think Bitcoin has an 86% brand recognition in the United States. Right. Okay. So you've got, you've got 86% brand recognition, but you've got it all around the world. Yeah. Okay. But at the moment, anarcho-capitalism isn't winning. Okay. Statism is winning. And that's not me saying. Oh, the, oh, in, the, in the war the, of ideas. In the war of ideas. Yeah. It is winning right 100%. now. And if we want to, even if you want to do it by Trojan horse, even if you think you can, you can, uh, reduce government down to the point of insignificance. You at least want to get Bitcoin into people's hands and get the, these ideas into, into them. But like, if I sit down in the pub with my friends and try and explain to them like a libertarian society and how it would work, and they're not they're not going to buy it at all. So we've got to this point now where we all the libertarians have heard of Bitcoin. They're not all on board, by the way, but they've all heard of it. Right? Right. A lot of them are on board. We're now at the point where we've got all the the, the normies who believe in government and democracy and left and right, blah. blah. We've got to get this across to those people. Right. We're not going to do that by having a show which is just like fringe hardcore ideas. And when I say fringe, I'm not criticizing it. Sure. I'm just saying it's like it's not a popular idea. A lot of people haven't even heard of libertarianism. They don't even know what it means. So we have to have these well, conversations. So, so, so yeah, and then that's yeah. For me, like when I am you know advocating for for Bitcoin, whether that is uh, talking to like lawmakers or their staffs, talking to like friends, whatever. My goal is to reduce the amount of requisite things that you have to agree with to get to Bitcoin is good. Because that's all I care about getting people do is to recognize that Bitcoin is good. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just is stupid from like a rhetorical perspective to think that the exact same thing that made you passionate is what's going to make every other person passionate but everyone is passionate about something, mm -hmm. right? And so it's just a matter of relating Bitcoin to that thing. Like before I was working uh, uh, in Bitcoin full-time, like a huge uh, facet of my life was uh, working in uh, organizing around like shutting down private prison construction. Oh um, yeah. And yeah, when I moved uh, and started working in Bitcoin, a lot of my, my friends, these are very far left people by and large, uh, and all my friends were just like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Why do you like Bitcoin? And it's like, I hadn't talked to them about Bitcoin before. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of realized like, what's the easiest way I can explain this to you? And I'm like, okay, uh, you know, have you heard of algorithmic policing? No, nope, but tell me. 
So algorithmic policing is a term that's used to describe uh, the usage of uh, software and algorithms to allocate police resources. So we got to this point where uh, cops couldn't just say like, oh yeah, we're going to just go police all of the the black neighborhoods and we're going to leave the white ones alone. They wanted something that was uh, objective and concrete. And so we saw the rise of algorithms that would basically predict crime. And so what do they do? Well, they use credit score. And so credit score, you know, they're not saying, we're not, no, no, we're not over-policing black neighborhoods. We're using objective metrics like credit score to determine where crime is most likely. But that's just a data point that codes for like race. And so when I'm talking to criminal justice, like organizers and advocates who are intimately familiar with this, the way that I explain Bitcoin to them is, do you want the government to have a centralized repository of all financial transactions, right? Like what happens when there are uh, goods and services that black Americans buy at a higher rate than white Americans? Well, now, uh, you know, uh, your CBDC is just going to lead to more algorithmic policing. Uh, And so starting off this conversation with them, I didn't get into uh, the money printer. I didn't get into fiat currency. I didn't get into the gold standard. I just took it straight to CBDCs are coming. They have massive implications for our privacy. They're going to be really, really bad for the most like vulnerable Americans. And uh, we need we need Bitcoin to fix it. Same thing with, with the stuff in Canada, right? Like I was texting some of my old, my friends from uh, uh, the sort of like anti-prison work. And I'm like, look, guys, uh, are you telling me that you can't realistically see a scenario where Donald Trump gets elected and says that BLM is a terrorist group and starts tracking down everyone who donated? Like I tweeted this the other day. It didn't get much engagement. Um, but I, I said, uh, if Bitcoin were around during the Red Scare, uh, the the right would hate it and the left would have loved it. Like cancel culture isn't anything new. We've been canceling each other for a very long time. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago that if you were a socialist or a communist, that that was a perfectly acceptable political take, like back in the 30s. And then you you, know, you see the 50s and 60s where socialists are being like beaten, jailed, stalked, harassed. Uh, we we canceled the left. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's sort of where I take it when I'm trying to persuade some of these people is like you can never control who is going to be in the end group. You can never control whether or not your ideas will be the dominant and protected ones. And so you have to kind of choose, like, do you want to sort of put your sail up and hope the wind blows in the right direction? Or do you want to make sure that everyone has the right to transact, that everyone has the right to send information, et cetera, et cetera. Because, and I think that example really hit home with a lot of people. It's like, oh shit. Yeah. I could see Donald Trump calling BLM a terrorist. He basically did, but you know, formally making like designating BLM as a, as a terrorist group and persecuting. I mean, if that happened, I think the left would stop hating Bitcoin because they'd like pretty much immediately get it. Well, I I talked to Margo about this previously. I was saying we, rather than having this kind of like very neat, small idea of what Bitcoin is and, and to be part of the, the Bitcoin cohort, you have to follow these same set of ideas. And, and if you don't, we're going to yell at you and shout at you. It's, to me, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. What we should be doing is like looking at other groups and telling them about the ideas of why Bitcoin is important to them. So, you know, 
uh, whether it's telling them about how Bitcoin is helping the Ukrainian army or is helping Russians avoid sanctions, or whether it's telling, showing how activists in Nigeria are using Bitcoin to protest, or activists in Belarus are protesting against Lukashenko, or whether it's uh, women in the Middle East who can't get a bank account but can hold Bitcoin, or people in Lebanon or Turkey avoiding inflation. Right. Like the, all these people I've just said are from a range of different political ideas. Yeah, these are, these are not libertarians. What these are, are a range of ideas, but every single one of them can benefit from Bitcoin. So, what should we do? Have a have a libertarian Bitcoin show that says this is what Bitcoin is. That's all. It, or should we have a show which is like? Here's the here's is the range of ideas globally that exist, and here's how Bitcoin can help these different use cases. And then we get more Bitcoin into more people more people's hands, and we grow this idea of of uncensorable money and, and, and how that can better the world. Now that's where I am, right? And and sadly that that means I take a lot of shit for it. I like fuck you, status cuck. But but at the same time, we we grow the the pool of people who discover Bitcoin and realize actually. It's not for criminals and terrorists and drug dealers. It's actually for the betterment of all society. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a trope. Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I think that the reason that Bitcoin, or a huge part of the reason that Bitcoin gets so much hate from the left uh, is because, especially from like the millennial left, like, you know, the younger generation, uh, it's because they have grown up in a time where their ideas have been, you know, really the... The, the in, the in group, they haven't been the on the side of cancel culture for, for the most part. But it's like, yeah, it, it's bizarre to me that people don't remember that just a couple of decades ago, it was being on the left that would get you canceled and not being on the on the right. But at, at a certain point, though, I do think there is there is a group of people to whom Bitcoin is just fundamentally not going to be all that persuasive. Um, and I think it's something that Bitcoiners that I see on Twitter um, often lump all progressives together or, yeah. you know, everyone on the left together and, you know, sort of the basic like political compass uh, where you've got sort of authoritarianism and libertarianism as the Y axis. And then your X axis is like left and right. I think Bitcoin appeals to everyone who is below that X axis. And what people forget is that like, there is an entire quadrant of like left libertarians. There are just very few thought leaders uh, in that, sphere, like there are very few public intellectuals who espouse left libertarian ideas, but I think a significant portion of people who say that they are on the left, who identify with being on the left, are really more left libertarian than they are uh, that sort of top left quadrant. But there's plenty of people on the left also who will watch lips of TikTok yeah. and they'll think, what the fuck is going on? I think this is madness, but people have grouped together Libs of TikTok, that's the entirety of the left. Well, they all think like this. But that's like saying everybody on the right is a neo-Nazi. It depends on whether you're attached to the solution or you're attached to the problem. Yeah. Right? I If you were, I know so many people who identify as like leftists or socialists or whatever, but when you get down to it, their, their strong view is not, oh, this is this alternate system of governance that I like really, really believe needs to be in place. They're like, dude, half of Americans can't afford a $400 medical expense. Like they're worried about inequality. They're worried about racism. They're worried about climate change. They're worried about poverty. Like all the same things that have been increasing that Bitcoiners will point to and say like, oh, well actually this all started in 1971 and it's because of the gold standard. Like uh, for the people who are just concerned about the problems that they see in the world and then they look at who's out there 
And they say, well, it's only these liberals. It's only the left that's talking about this. Oh, I guess I'm like a leftist. Those people are very, very easy to bring into Bitcoin because Bitcoin helps vulnerable people. Uh, But I mean, if you are like super, super attached philosophically to centralized, like a centralized state, like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend too much time trying to like orange pill those people, but we shouldn't write off everyone who's on the left as being like incapable of being reached because that's the counter argument is that you say, I'm trying to broaden Bitcoin's appeal. Other people will just tell you, well, like, why are you even bothering? Like, those people don't deserve Bitcoin. Like, you know, you get it at the price you deserve. Like, you're never going, or or you're never going to be able to persuade them, which again, is just like not true. I, I know it's not true. And I can tell you why it's not true. So perfect example, there was one week and it was kind of by design, but two consecutive shows. We had Laura Luma mm-hmm. followed by Anita Posh. Ooh. So you've got like total conservative followed by a total progressive, right? And... You go onto the YouTube comments, it's like, why have you got this nutter Luma on? And then following that, you've got um, Anita, and you've got, why have you got this nutter lefty on? And this, like, this inability for some people to accept that the world is made up of different people You're with in different ideas. You're in the perfect spot, Peter. If you are getting attacked by both sides, that's when you know you're right. Oh, no, but, but, I am. And, and, but it's like, there's like this inability to accept the world is made up with a group of different people who have different ideas. And you don't change people by shouting them. And we're not going to get everybody into the same little part with the same set of ideas. It's just not going to happen. So what do we do? How do we bridge that? We bridge that maybe with Bitcoin and that, okay, Bitcoin can help you with this and you with this. And maybe it's going to stop us all fighting. Maybe it's going to reduce the power of media, which influences us to fight each other. Maybe it's going to reduce the power of the state. So the state has less influence over us. Maybe it's going to make sure that everybody... Like maybe in Canada, it would have meant the truckers could protest and it would have stopped the people who are, who are uh, living in Ottawa who are against this. Like, uh, and I know it's true. And the reason I know it's true because of the emails. And Like Danny sees them. Yeah, I get hundreds of emails of people listening to the show. Uh, and I get like, it's a range of things, but I get a lot of people on the left saying, thank you for making that show. Thank you for having this guest. Thank you for discussing this idea. I'm not going to talk about it on Twitter because I don't want to get shouted at. So I know it exists. There is a, yeah. there's a, so we should be having these conversations. It's and not just going. No one's ideology is like internally consistent. No. Like that's the thing. It's like people expect giant groups of people to all share the same beliefs when like 99.99% of people don't even have internally consistent beliefs. And I'm, I'm not saying that like myself included. Uh, so to, to hold like an entire swath of people to a particular set of ideas, uh, it's very, very difficult. It gets back to what I was saying about the cleanest path to getting someone to being pro Bitcoin is to minimize the amount of bullshit extra things that they need to agree with. Um, internet money is good, like period. Okay. What should internet money look like? Well, it probably shouldn't be run by the government. Okay. It probably shouldn't be run by fucking Facebook. Okay. It probably shouldn't be run in a, a proof of stake system that just replicates all of the nonsense of the, so, so like you convince someone that internet money is good and then you're just like, okay, what should it look like? Go through all the options. Oh wait. Yeah. It looks like proof of work in Bitcoin is probably the best answer. Like, and it can make, it the doesn't wo- need to have anything to do with really anything else. Like, you know, CBDCs are bad. Internet money is good. And as far as I can tell, the best form of internet money that exists is Bitcoin. And it's likely going to stay that way. And it works. Certainly. And it works now. And you can use it now. Yeah. And it can improve the world now. It doesn't require a massive shift in the world. I mean, 
if Bitcoin shifts people, which we've talked about plenty of times, like plenty of people say Bitcoin has changed me. Yeah. Not just financially, it's changed the way I see the world, it's changed the way I think about the world, it's changed the way I think about myself. If it can do that at an individual level, if enough people adopt it, then it can start to make those more macro shifts in how society coordinates and you know how how governments coordinate. So it can work now, but trying to create this like tiny little ideology that has to fit, I just think is flawed. And you know, I can't make a show that does that. It just just is. Yeah. It's, I think it's intellectually dishonest, and it and it is it is appealing to that small group of people that you're worried about are going to try and cancel you. Yeah. And I mean, the flip side of that though, is that there is like value in community, right? Yep. And if I like, if you want a community of like, so just for example, like the sort of carnivore, toxic Bitcoin maximalist, you know, that agrees with like the same sort of, you know, seed oil, sunscreen, all like, that's awesome. Right. Like it's very, very cool and enjoyable to find people that you share ideas with. Cause like I said earlier, it's, you know, we don't usually, you don't usually agree. I think that's why Bitcoiners all like to go to meetups and conferences and hang out because you're around people who understand you. So I, I feel like it's important to clarify like there's nothing wrong with building community that is tangential to Bitcoin. I think where I personally get frustrated is when people take random shit that has nothing to do with the protocol. And say, this is Bitcoin. Yeah. Like, no, Bitcoin doesn't give a fine fuck what you think about sunscreen or meat or any of those things. You're and, not a Bitcoiner. Yeah. It's like fuck the, that. the no true Scotsman thing is just so on, on display here. But again, the caveat is like community is good and people deserve to be able to and, and should not be criticized for carving out community where everyone's on the same page about Bitcoin plus eight other things. It can't happen the other way around. It has to be like Bitcoin first. And then there's these like derivative communities. What you don't want to happen is like the sort of inverse of that, where it's like you have to believe that Internet money is good. You have to believe that Bitcoin is the best form of Internet money. And you need to believe a bajillion other things like that's so you're not one of us. Or or you're, not, you're not a Bitcoiner. Yeah, that's like not the not the world I want to live in. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure, sounds absolutely perfect for me and I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, 
then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also today, we have Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about Wow, what is it, like four months now? And I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. It's one of the things I hate most is when somebody says, you're not a Bitcoiner. So well, what defines a Bitcoiner? Yeah, the fun, one, there is no universal definition of a Bitcoiner. And anyone that is created is subjective because it was created by a person. Yeah, I just wholly... Like, I, I was talking about that Hal Finney quote earlier, right? This is like in 1990, this is like 15 years before Bitcoin, 10 years before Bitcoin. Uh, and Hal Finney was like, look, the notion that we can recede into technology and ignore sort of everything that happens on the social layer is absurd. Like, he said, you know, we have to win political victories to win our privacy. And, and I don't think he meant like elections, like you have to get the right politicians in office. But there is this like layer of, if Bitcoin is a bulwark against oppression, if Bitcoin is a bulwark against tyranny, will Bitcoin have been successful if only a handful of very technically literate people are able to use it or are using it? You understand what an expert is? I, I would say no. <laughs> it's like, you know, we, we, if there was nuclear war and like Joe Biden and, and all the U.S. senators survived in a bunker, like, would that be a, a victory? Like, no, I think everyone should have a bunker. I think everyone should have Bitcoin. And so if you believe that Bitcoin is good and you believe that Bitcoin is not just good in the abstract, but good for people, that it does something useful for an individual, it's kind of like a really unempathetic take to just be like, oh, yeah, Bitcoin is really important and you're going to need it to protect yourself but fuck you, I hope you don't buy it. Like, you shouldn't have it because, you know, we don't agree with things. Like, Bitcoin's a lifeboat. And I don't think anyone should be arbiting who gets to jump in the lifeboat, but in the lifeboat while the ship is sinking. Like, I, I don't know. That's kind of where I come at it from. 
I completely agree. Obviously, I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> so we got other stuff to talk about. Yeah. Besides well, Bitcoin, wanna, Twitter. Well, because you're talking about canceling, a fucking country's been canceled. Yeah. Uh, which is fucking <laughs> unbelievable. Like a country has been canceled, uh, which has got these horrible uh, effects to it. Whereby, like, uh, right. Then there's like so many parts you can debate about it. Like, are sanctions good? Are they bad? Um, is it right in this scenario? You know, who says this is a just war? And actually, we did even worse in Iraq. Are we hypocrites? Yada, yada. But it's a whole debate itself. But we have oligarchs having their assets seized yeah. again. We can debate whether that's just or not, whether it's, you know, essentially whether uh, are there boats and their uh, houses the proceeds of crime you could you can make an argument that these people have pillaged the state uh, under a kind of like mafia leadership. You support Putin. Like, we can go through all of that. Yeah, the, and of course you can draw all those equivalences to American billionaires as, as well. Exactly. So, no, it's, yeah, it's but, a it's a rabbit hole. But but the point is, we've got a country that has been cancelled, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's become chief FUD officer for God. Bitcoin, whatever it is, she's going to come out. She's now saying that Russia is going to be. Uh, using Bitcoin to avoid sanctions. You put a piece out this week on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I read it. That was good. Uh, I'm not sure if you're subtweeted, but Marty Bent made a point about uh, if you think Russia wouldn't use Bitcoin to avoid sanctions, you're an idiot. So, like, mm. there's a counterpoint to it. I feel like I should, yeah, yeah. Get, get into bigger, greater depth here. And yeah, I, since definitely. I'm in Austin, I'd like to talk to Marty about this because Odell texted me too. And he was like, Do you really think like Russia won't use Bitcoin to evade sanctions? Uh, and my answer was like, well, sort of yes and no, but like you have to take a step back and like first sort of understand like what the goal of sanctions are. Um, in this instance, uh, sanctions are designed to cut off Russia's economy from the rest of the world, A, and, and B, to, uh, punish Putin and his cronies. So in other words, to keep capital from coming in and to keep certain capital from leaving, when Elizabeth Warren says that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are going to be used by Russia to evade sanctions, it's important that we bifurcate like what that means. Like, will Bitcoin allow some Russian oligarchs to get money out of the country? Absolutely. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, it's probably going to have to be money that they had in offshore accounts that weren't tied to their actual identity. Yeah, absolutely. It's also going to help the 144 million people that live there. It's going to be the only way. To, for them to get their money out of uh, a currency that's collapsing. So it's like when Elizabeth Warren says we should ban cryptocurrency from all Russians, what she is looking at her constituents with a straight face and saying is that 140 million people deserve to have all of their money taken away uh, just so that we can make sure a few billionaires don't get some of their money out of Russia. And, 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 and that actually, is one it, of the most just anti-empathetic, anti-humanitarian. I mean, it's it's nuts. Well, the, the the people they're trying to punish are the ones who will be able to, they'll be fine anyway. Right. But, but to Odell's point, or sorry, to, to Marty's point, I do not think that uh, Bitcoin is going to be the tool, at least now, uh, that Russia, for example, uh, uh, denominates its exports in. Um, you know, I, and it's, this is sort of in the, the infographic. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons like why, um, I think the most easy to understand reason is that sanctions are enforced on the social layer uh, as much, if not more, than they're enforced on the rails layer, right? 
these sanctions apply. It doesn't matter whether you're sort of paying for things in in uh, in seashells or in Bitcoin or in Mickey Mantle trading cards like it. You are not allowed to transact with Russia, so you're not going to transact with Russia if you are worried about inspiring the ire of the West. You are going to transact with Russia if you don't care. And at the point where China and Russia have developed uh, alternatives to SWIFT, like CIPS, where China's rolling out the digital yuan, where Russia has massive stockpiles of yuan and gold, like people are going to, the people who want to buy stuff from Russia are going to buy it, buy it. And maybe they will use Bitcoin. Maybe they won't. It's not like Bitcoin is the, the, the limiting factor though. The limiting no. factor is the wrath of the West. Uh, and so, no, I don't think that Bitcoin is going to, uh, and then you can get kind of the technicals of it, right? Russia does uh, like $430, $440 billion of exports a year. Uh, so daily, that's like $1.2, $1.3 billion going into Russia every day. I mean, if Russia said, hey, we will sell our oil and sell all of our exports in Bitcoin, like Bitcoin would probably moon to the extent that there were countries and states that are like willing to to, to pay for these things. Um but, but yeah, I think, you know, even the U.S. Treasury came out and they sort of said the same thing. So it's, I mean, it is crazy. Like Elizabeth Warren is really, really showing her colors here. Like it, I, I was a long holdout on her because I was like, you know, this environmental stuff is, if you don't know anything about Bitcoin, very persuasive, right? Our counter response requires a lot of understanding, but the critique is very easy to understand if you care about the climate, like. Bitcoin uses a lot of energy, uses as much energy as some country, super wasteful. And so I, I did like kind of hold out on Elizabeth Warren thinking like, okay, maybe this is just like a pet issue for her. And to be fair, if she hasn't engaged with like high quality information about Bitcoin, whatever. But now, I mean, it, it's it's become, it, she wrote a letter to Treasury <laughs> telling them that they need to take a closer look at the role that Bitcoin's going to have in undermining sanctions after Treasury was like, yeah, we're not that worried about this. <laughs> and, and if anything, I would say that uh, uh, Bitcoin in some ways makes U.S. sanctions better. The reason why is that a large goal of sanctions are to, uh, to decouple an autocrat or a tyrant from their population, um, to create like suffering uh, so that people uh, no longer want that leader in charge. Uh, when does that ever work? Well, yeah, empirically sanctions have failed like 95% of the time. And, and yeah, saying we can get, I'd like to get into that in a second, but the, the point here is that if you do sanctions in a way that punish everyday Russians, you are going to do the exact opposite. You are going to give Putin something to rally behind. He's going to be able to point to all of the suffering that's going on and say, this isn't my fault. This is the West's fault. And so rather than having the intended effect of decoupling a population from its leader, if sanctions are done so punitively, uh, like in this instance, not allowing Russian, like everyday Russians to take their money out of rubles and put it into Bitcoin or put it into dollars or whatever they want to put it in, I can guarantee you that it's going to not only be a humanitarian crisis, but even if you are 
you know, pro-sanctions, pro-America, and you want sanctions to be as effective as possible, you probably want Bitcoin to exist. And I'm not just saying this. This is like a core stated tenet of U.S. sanctions policy is that they need to be done or should be done in a way that avoids the appearance of just kind of undue suffering, like deliberately causing undue suffering to the average person. So Elizabeth Warren is simultaneously advocating for the creation of one of the worst humanitarian crises we'll ever see and advocating for making sanctions less effective all because what? She wants to keep some billionaires from getting... No, she just hates... Bitcoin and is just like a, a liar. <laughs> like at this point, I, I, I volunteered on her campaign. Like <laughs> when I was in high school, like I think Elizabeth Warren's bright. Uh, and there are things that I agree with. She was really prescient about pointing out some of the ways that our financial system is just rigged and stupid. I know she should understand Bitcoin. Like, yeah. It, but, but now with this, it's like, it's like appalling to watch Elizabeth Warren and progressives openly and proudly call for the mass suffering of, of everyday Russians by banning cryptocurrency. And yeah, it's, it, there is no room for, there's no excuse, right? Treasury has come out and said, yeah, we're just not that worried about Bitcoin uh, uh, facilitating the evasion of sanctions. So yeah, to Marty's point, I, I think like where he's probably coming at it is saying like, look, you're an idiot. Bitcoin, this is the whole point of Bitcoin. Bitcoin yeah. doesn't give a fuck uh, what you do. Um, tr- true, but nation states have militaries, right? And again, sanctions work on the social layer. So will Bitcoin be a way of evading sanctions on a rails layer? Yes, absolutely. Like if Russia gets completely cut off from everything, if China backs away, like, yes, Bitcoin will be a very dependable way of getting money into and out of the country, but only with the people uh, who are willing to break the law, only with the people who are willing to... uh, uh, violate the stated policy of the people that have the monopoly on violence. And so and we I know don't who think, that will be exactly. So I don't think that Bitcoin is a means of like nation state level evasion of sanctions because it's the social layer. That's what makes sanctions work. It's not just cutting people off from those tools. Like, well, uh, uh, Iran and China will trade with Russia because they don't care. Yeah. And China pumps. Who do you think supplies all of North Korea's oil? Yeah, but and and people China. people people who operate corporations in the U.S. are not going to trade with Russia because they don't want to end up in jail. Yeah, I mean it's very it's kind of very simple. Yeah, I don't know. So so yeah, like I think that's a, just an important premise that has really become obvious in the wake of Canada and now in the wake of this is that there is a difference between a transaction being uncensorable and. Uh, you being able to make that transaction without the fear of repercussion. Um, you know, it kind of goes into like the whole advocacy stuff, like with the the Policy Institute and all the other work that I'm doing. It's like, why do you care what the state thinks about Bitcoin? Bitcoin is going to destroy the state. Like Bitcoin is, it can't be stopped. Like, yeah, that's, that's like true. Stopping Bitcoin is very, very hard to imagine. But to think that like individual users aren't vulnerable on the social layer ridiculous to think that we wouldn't all be worse off if America banned Bitcoin and my mind kind of ridiculous, right? Like so much of Bitcoin's most compelling use cases were not quite there yet. The user interface isn't quite yet there, quite there yet. The, the uh, infrastructure isn't quite there yet. And I do think that even if Bitcoin inevitably gets banned in the U S 
I would like to delay that as long as possible. We've got the strongest IP laws in the world, the deepest capital markets in the world. Like I would prefer for Bitcoin innovation to have access to uh, America for as long as possible. And I would prefer for to be able to stay in America with my Bitcoin for as long as possible. And so, yeah, it's like, I I get messages all the time from people that are like, fuck you, like Bitcoin can't be stopped. And I'm like, yes, but your life will be worse if armed men come to your house and point a gun at you and demand your private keys (laughs) like that. And again, there's a whole shade of gray in there, too. Right. Like the world has happened. Yeah, it has. And the world is a worse place if if in in Canada, they they did just this. Nobody caribou. Yeah. The guy managing the fundraising Bitcoin. I, yeah. They went to his house. I don't know how they did it, but they got the private keys to the Bitcoin. Yeah. Again, like Bitcoin may be unstoppable on the technological layer, but users are are obviously vulnerable on the social layer. Uh and and yeah, there's a whole the reason I do policy work is because I think that there are policies that the U.S. would pass that would make life really hard for Bitcoiners. And I think that there are things that we can do to like delay that or to stop it. And it's working, right? Because there is a growing uh, number of senators and people in Congress who support Bitcoin. There's a growing, it certainly it feels like, it feels like almost every person I see who's like uh, running for Congress is a, a pro-Bitcoin because they keep emailing us asking to come on the show. We've had so many... <laughs> Like the, there is this kind of like growing uh, support for Bitcoin behind with politicians or those who are trying to to get a seat in the Congress. Yeah, there is. Um, the tough thing, though, is that they have a lot of incentive to be pro Bitcoin, right? They, of view, they view this because th- there's a, such an asymmetry of support, like very few issues that matter to people uh, or to any meaningful amount of people are without a sort of equal and opposite group of people who are equally passionate about like the, 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 the inverse of that, um, guns, abortion, healthcare, we, you, you name it with Bitcoin though. Like it's just net net you're winning votes. Like there is not this like group of people who are going to like flip their support for a political candidate because they hate Bitcoin so much, but they're every single Bitcoiner or most of them. I can't say that, but most Bitcoiners don't really care about political parties. It's like, if you are, pro-Bitcoin, they're going to vote for you. So that's why politicians are getting into it. But the risk is, is that because that incentive structure is so good, that like Bitcoin's game theory is just so obviously the right move to make as a politician is to support it. It also means that we have to do a really good job of like vetting people. Look at Eric Adams. I know. I, right? Yeah. Like just because somebody fucking puts Bitcoin in their Twitter bio doesn't mean that they're a Bitcoiner. And I think that's also something that gets like lost on some people when I kind of explain to them like the work that I do. Cause they're like, Oh, you're just like simping for politicians. And it's like, no, I'm out answering people. Really all I'm doing is answering people's questions and I'm trying to paint Bitcoin in the best light possible. And I'm trying to make arguments that appeal to people that have different priorities and views. Uh, what I'm not trying to do though. And I, what I worry about happening is a world where, yeah, politicians just start kind of using the community to get publicity, like coming on your show to get money. And they like actually don't care about like what we really need to do if you want to engage in like the election process. Like ultimately we have to elect like Bitcoiners if that's what you want to do. I don't really know if that's necessary or not. But well, this it goes back to the original point where the conversation started, David, where we talked about 
We want to avoid this very small niche set of beliefs you have to be a Bitcoiner yeah. and actually want to make it a Bitcoin as open to as many people as possible, left, right, center, libertarian, want everyone as possible. Because if the game theory is right, then and enough people own Bitcoin and support Bitcoin, every politician will have to support it. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, and again, it's like, I think where this triggers some people is they interpret it to mean that if we don't pander to the politicians, then Bitcoin will will collapse. And like, of course, that's not true. It's it's about the timeline, right? Like, I think Bitcoin staying legal in America greatly accelerates the timeline of of Bitcoin adoption and in a, more importantly than adoption, like innovation mm-hmm. on Bitcoin. And and yeah, uh, banning it does the exact opposite. So there's there's such a strong incentive to to engage in in that advocacy, even if you recognize that ultimately it's not necessary. Like that, no, like you don't need politicians to keep Bitcoin running. Bitcoin will run no matter what the politicians think, and you'll be able to use Bitcoin no matter what the politicians think, unless they are sending armed men to your house to track you down and shoot you. In which case, like Bitcoin isn't going to save you from. A, a state monopoly on violence. What, what do you think will happen with China? Do you think they will reverse their decision? Because I think it's widely seen that uh, banning Bitcoin mining could prove to be one of the most biggest geopolitical mis- mistakes in history. No. But do you, like, Danny, who said it this week? Uh, Barry Silbert said he thought 2022 China would unban Bitcoin. I mean, it, he he did clarify that it was just a guess. He so did. I, <laughs> no. I would take the other side of that. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, China's foreign policy is a lot more subtle uh, than America's, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Mildly. Um, but, but China has like a very, very long history of uh, using attraction rather than coercion um, with, with its international policy. Um, what we are seeing China do is roll out the Belt and Road Initiative uh, in part as a way to build better relationships with like resource-rich nations and emerging markets, but also to internationalize the renminbi and in turn Xi Jinping's uh, sort of rule of law. Bitcoin is a direct threat to that. Right now, China can go to like you know Jack Mueller's like talk for the IMF. Like, yeah. Did you did you end up watching the video? The, 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 the actual, video, the actual yeah, video. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. So, so what he talks about is uh, how, you know, so many people like, you know, we always say like, oh, it takes three days to settle a legacy payment uh, with like Swift or Fedwire. It's like, well, that that's if you're lucky, right? One of the things that Jack gets into is how correspondent banking is declining, has declined 20% over the last decade with those declines concentrated in Africa, in Latin America, in a lot of the countries that sort of need it the most. Those are the countries where Bitcoin adoption is rising the fastest. And those are also the countries where China is engaging in all of these dollar denominated uh, lending agreements in. Uh, And so in many ways, China, it's a sales pitch. Like China has the perfect sales pitch for their CBDC right now because they can say, hey, you're actually like, look at the West, they're failing you. These banking relationships are going away and you need to conduct cross-border payments. Use our digital yuan. And if the choices between the legacy system and the Chinese central bank digital currency, those people are going to pick the Chinese CBDC every single time, even if even if it means like privacy trade-offs. Then enter Bitcoin. If the choice is between Bitcoin or DCEP, you know, the you remember digital one, you whatever, what's well, a it's a clear choice. Why would I want to use a Chinese currency when I could use 
when I could use Bitcoin. Um, Unless you get a massive loan from the Chinese <laughs> government. Yeah. So, so no, I think they're not going to unban Bitcoin, both because they're concerned about capital controls and they, they want to manage and control the flow of capital domestically. But Bitcoin is a perfect solution to Xi Jinping's plan to internationalize the usage of their MMB. And the implications of that are just so profound. In the same way that the West has leveraged its monopoly over the financial system to uh, sort of shape the international system to its views and its liking, uh, China is uh, trying to do the exact same, right? If you're using, if you and I were paying each other and one of us was interacting with DCEP, Xi Jinping could say, oh yeah, that's subversive to the state, that's terrorism, and then stop that transaction from happening or seize that person's money, even if it's happening in a, outside of the, the mainland China. They recognize how important this tool is. Like, if you control the rails of finance, you control the world. And Bitcoin, kind of like Balaji was tweeting about this, like how Bitcoin, and I don't know if he said non-aligned movement exactly, but something that's been on my mind is, yeah, Bitcoin allows people to make the choice to not be controlled by America, but also to not have to go in turn be controlled by an authoritarian regime. So at the point where Bitcoin is the perfect solution to so many of the problems with the legacy payment system, especially in emerging markets, uh, China has a very, very strong incentive to hate it uh, and to not want it to spread. Um, but do you not think on a long enough time frame they still have to concede? If we, if Bitcoin wins. Yes. When Bitcoin wins? When Bitcoin wins, I, I don't know. I just like, I have no idea. What I do know is that like, I think they have very strong reasons to not support Bitcoin. I don't know when, if ever, they kind of realize like, oh shit, we're not going to be able to replicate what the West did. Because that's what they thought they could do, right? So post Bretton Woods, the IMF is operating for, for decades and, uh, if you ever looked at like some of the term sheets of like IMF like rescue packages, the average number of conditionalities from like 1970 uh, conditionalities being sort of arbitrary actions that the receiving state has to do in exchange for this IMF loan, it's like 430, uh, like 430 different things that you had to do before the IMF would give you money. Like. Give some examples. Uh, uh, austerity, uh, sort of slash social spending. I mean, in Brazil, like one of the conditionalities on a, I remember reading was like building soccer fields. It's just random stuff. But the point is, when you're the only game in town, you're the only people that can give a nation state level loan, uh, you have a tremendous amount of, of leverage. So what does China do? They build parallel institutions. So in 2015, I think it's 2015, they launched the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is kind of trying to do the exact same thing as the IMF with the exception that there are no conditionalities, at least not up front. They're, they're more subtle. It's like, we'll give you, well, through like BRI lending, it's like, we'll build you this railroad. You'll pay us back in like 20 years, but if you can't pay for it, and by the way, we are going to structure this agreement so that you won't be able to pay for it. Don't sweat it. You can just like give us your oil or you can just give us your cobalt mines. We'll take your port. <laughs> we'll take your, exactly. We'll take your port. But once China started doing the same thing as America, except no strings attached, IMF conditionalities got uh, massively, massively eviscerated. I think now the average conditionalities, number of conditionalities on an IMF loan is like in the 30s or 40s. Um, and frankly, Bitcoin, and, and so, so yeah, like what China's strategy is doing makes sense because they're like, we're creating this market competition to this monopoly that is America and we're going to be more attractive to the consumer. 
and we're going to take this power that America has built, what they don't understand is that Bitcoin is doing the same thing, but it's better than both of them. And so in the world with Bitcoin, people have to ask themselves, is this Chinese currency better than Bitcoin? And they're always going to say no. If in a world without Bitcoin, they're just going to ask, is this Chinese currency, digital currency, better than what I'm using now? The answer is probably going to be yes. So Bitcoin just kind of played the same game that China is trying to, but earlier and better. And I don't think China's quite realized that. But, but there aren't any loans, really. With Bitcoin? Yeah. No, no, no. There, there aren't loans at all. I'd, but but, but the, the, you can argue that Bitcoin's better for the people, but for the government who has the option of going to China and getting a huge loan mm. to fund whether it's internal projects or fund corruption, yeah, there's a, a, an inflow of money that comes into the government. But there isn't with Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, the implications of that depend on what you think hyper-Bitcoinization means and like the timeline that that happens. Because there's a difference between Bitcoin being the global reserve currency and Bitcoin being a niche asset. There's a difference between Bitcoin being the global reserve currency and America buying a bunch of, basically buying enough Bitcoin so that they can just replicate fractional reserve, uh, fractional reserve banking uh, uh, with it. So can they? I don't know, probably not in practice, but like in theory, I mean, Bitcoin would moon, but America probably could just buy all of the Bitcoin with the US dollar, with the dollars that it's printing. I mean, at a certain point, you know, the the dollar. But they can't really. I don't want to say like blanket no. Will they? No. Could they? I don't want to write off that possibility. Um, you should have Dr. William Luther on the show okay. and talk to him about it because it's not something that I've spent much time thinking about. And I don't have a super nuanced or like strongly held opinion, but he has thought a lot about it and went on a spaces with Bitcoin magazine recently and was talking to who was it CK and some of those guys. And he was getting into this whole theory of how the U S government could buy enough Bitcoin or, or all of the Bitcoin and then just start like basically uh, uh, debasing like tying, pegging the dollar to Bitcoin and then just changing the amount of dollars. Like he has a whole thesis behind this. It just doesn't sound like you can't buy all of the Bitcoin because everyone has to want to sell. And if they they start buying a lot of the Bitcoin, the price is going to moon and maybe some people will sell. But like if the hodlers just become the new like rulers of the world, if America tries this strategy. (laughs) But it becomes very obvious that someone's trying to buy all the Bitcoin and it just makes it too expensive. I mean, Michael Saylor's trying to buy all the Bitcoin at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that is pretty dumb, actually. <laughs> I, I don't buy that one. No, I don't buy that either. But to answer your question, it depends on how hyper-Bitcoinization plays out. Because there is a difference between uh, Bitcoin being the global reserve currency and Bitcoin being a- an asset. The how- former definitely puts huge constraints on deficit spending and what the state can do. The latter really doesn't necessarily. How do you know when it is the global reserve currency? What is the trigger where you go, yeah, we've reached that point? I don't know. Is it oil priced in Bitcoin? Is it oil priced in Bitcoin? Is it dollars like pegged to Bitcoin? Is it some, is it, you know, Bitcoin being the most denom, like most traded in currency? Like there's a lot of metrics that you could use. Is it the most like widely held reserve asset by other central banks? Like I'm not sure which single indicator would mean like Bitcoin is the global reserve currency. Because I think what's more likely is that 
we're just going to have multiple, like you saw on Twitter, yeah. like Powell said this, yeah. like, hey, what, what do you think he meant by that? Uh, I think it's like, we're, we're fucked. <laughs> like, but do you, do you think he, he's given a nod to Bitcoin or do you think he's talking about the digital, digital yuan alongside the dollar? I think he might be, because the digital yuan, is, or the, the yuan is only what, like, I'm trying to remember, I read a chart a couple of weeks ago and it was like, the dollar is the dollar and the euro together are just under like 80% of global payments. Um, and then beneath them is the pound, which is just over 5%. And then beneath that is the yuan just under 5%. Obviously Bitcoin's further down the, the line, but I don't know if we're looking at a world anytime soon where the yuan is like part of the global reserve. So, so it's a nod to Bitcoin. Yeah. I read it as a nod to at the very least, the recognition that we're rapidly transitioning into a multipolar world, that it isn't just the American show anymore. Well, that, if, they, uh, if they know they're fucked and they're looking at alternatives, then it would be better that it was Bitcoin than the digital yuan. Oh, absolutely. And I would guess, I've said this before, I would guess without any actual evidence that uh, per capita, the majority of Bitcoin is owned in the US. So if if the if Bitcoin becomes a global reserve currency, we stand the most to gain. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, as long as Bitcoin companies are here, the state is like extracting tax revenue at a disproportionate rate to the rest of the world. Uh, if miners are here, then you know we have a lot more to get. So yeah, like there's almost this like light version of the Cantillian effect, which is like, if Bitcoin is more in your country, you will benefit more than other countries. And I do think that's kind of the end game that American leaders are going to have to recognize is that we can't kill this. And if we ban it, we are just boxing ourselves out of the benefits. And oh, wait, maybe if we actually like promote Bitcoin here, maybe if we do things that will keep Bitcoin capital here, like preventing uh, bans on self-custody, like making sure that everyone has the right to run a node or use a coin join. <laughs> like, could you imagine like, I can't it was, imagine like a coin enshrined join. in law that was like, you will have like the unalienable right to use like a coin join. Well, at a certain point, those are the types of things that you may have to do if you want to retain even just a fraction of the kind of seniorage that you were used to having before. Um, and so, yeah, the game theory is like, you want it, you want it here because otherwise well, you're not, you're not winning. You're just like hurting yourself. But it's a defensive move as well in that it's, if you know the dollar's fucked and the dollar can't remain the reserve currency, it's a defensive move to try and prevent it being another one controlled by another country. Yeah. That would be, be fascinating to the point where it's like, we're going to war over who has more hash rate. <laughs> hash rate was, fuck, man. You got to have Lowry on here to talk about that. Yeah, I've been meaning to do that, but like got to get him in person. Yeah. Got to get himself to me. I mean, there's, his thesis is like wild, but I mean, I think we did just kind of arrive at like a, a tenant of his thesis, which is that like, if there is such a benefit to having Bitcoin happen in your country, um, people will go to whatever links uh are justified by by that benefit uh so it would be a wild wild time for the fed or the u.s government whoever to turn around and say we believe bitcoin is the global reserve currency now and we are backing this that would be nuts <laughs> i mean for every cypherpunk and developer 
who in 2000, well, actually prior to the invention of Bitcoin, were working on the projects before Bitcoin and then worked on Bitcoin and then put up with all the shit and the ridicule and the abuse year after year to have it all play out. And then you run, then we would have the opposite problem, Peter, which would be, okay, how do we stop regulatory capture? How do we stop America from controlling 51, like the US government from controlling 51% of the hash rate? But there's no incentive for them to do that. No, there's not. But I do think a world in which America embraces Bitcoin, uh, we've got to make sure that that embracing isn't just a Trojan horse for increased state control. But if they have the most to gain from Bitcoin becoming the global reserve currency, they have the most to lose from a 51% attack. Yeah, that's true. But they're going to try to create a world. Like I don't, even if they like buy into Bitcoin, I do think the government is going to, they're not going to be orange pilled enough to know that like the best way for this to work is for like, no, they're, they're the U S government. They're going to try to, I mean, they're going to try to ban or restrict self-custody. They're going to try to create strong incentives, maybe on the other side to not self-custody your Bitcoin. They're going to want to make sure that it's like AML, KYC. Like it's just important to note that like there is government action and embracing of Bitcoin that's good, but that can also be a way to sneak in government action that's really bad for Bitcoin. Uh, And oftentimes when the US government says that it's doing one thing, it's doing the exact opposite. Um, you know, the Patriot Act, right? Sounds yeah. wonderful. It's not, right? Imagine the Bitcoin Act and it's like, we're making Bitcoin legal tender. Uh, you just gotta, you know, give up your private keys and like self-custody with our Chivo wallet or whatever. Like, that's <laughs> not a win. Like, that's awful. So yeah, I do think political support is good. Kind of going way back up the stack to like the Hal Finney point. Like political endorsement is good. Yes, America has super strong reasons to support Bitcoin, both domestically both economically and, you know, from a, uh, an IR perspective and a global competition perspective. Uh, but not all political advocacy is good. Not all political support is, is good. And, you know, you got to make sure that when you're bringing someone on your podcast, they're not going to pull an Eric Adams on us. We keep rejecting them. Have you rejected all of them? Uh, so we had Erika uh, Rhodes, mm-hmm. who I think everyone loves. Yeah. Uh, and um, Erica's Erica's cool. She's cool. Morgan uh, Harper. Sorry, Morgan. Uh, sorry, Morgan Harper. Yeah, Morgan Harper. I don't think she offered a lot. Uh, and I think in her debate with Josh Mandel, he he pretty much destroyed her and her arguments. Uh, it was pretty one sided. Yeah. And then we've had five or six more come through, and it's just like all these conversations are the same. They're exactly the same. And I'm not sure if they're Bitcoiners. I'm not sure how much they care. And I don't want to have the same conversation over and over again. I will talk to Josh Mandel. He does. I mean, he's been in it for a minute. Yeah. And if you talk to him, uh, let me just put it this way. If if Josh Mandel were lying about being a Bitcoiner, he would be a remarkably, like, I mean, just an unrealistically good liar. And I mean, it would have, I mean, there's just no way he, he was the, he like basically got fired for telling the Ohio government to go fuck itself because he wanted people to be able to pay taxes in Bitcoin. Yeah, he, and I think he saw that as just a way of like, I'm in government. What can I do to like legitimate Bitcoin? Like whatever. Um, but he like went out on a massive limb and like really risked his reputation earlier than most people in the space 
uh, in the name of in the name of Bitcoin. Now he's so a, he's a real one. He's, he's kind of the real deal, I think. I'm, uh, we we're trying to make a careful choice between: is this person good for Bitcoin, or is the show good for their campaign? Yeah, uh, and if the if it's like the balance shifts, if I think the balance is they're good for Bitcoin, they can come on the show. If I think the balance is the show is good for their campaign, then it's that's not they're not going to come on the show because like there's a responsibility with this show now. Like we're edging closer and closer to getting a hundred thousand listeners a show, and when you get to that point, you've got to think about who you're platforming. Like I think you have, to, you can't just say these conversations. You have to consider who you're platforming. I would much rather have yourself on. I would much rather have. Troy Crosson, who's doing something interesting no one's heard of, and like get him out there. I'd like, I'd much rather uh, have Margot on. Like, I don't right. want to get some politician on just so they can. But in some ways, it shouldn't you be? Because if you're getting these politicians on, you can just grill them. <laughs> like, what if you said, like, yes, you can come on my show, but I'm going to ask you questions about Bitcoin? Because the thing is, whether or not they come on your show, like we mentioned, Politicians are going to start putting Bitcoin in their bio more and more. They're going to start making appeals to the community more and more. And so, you know, how is it that we're able to kind of say, well, our gut tells us that Erica is good. Our gut tells us that Josh Mandel is like actually a Bitcoiner. Um, in some ways, there's value in having them come on here just to see what they know well, then, and, and show that. Cause I think you can tell if you're asking a politician, why is it you support Bitcoin? What's your favorite thing about Bitcoin? Like you start asking some of these questions and like, I think it could be a, a sort of a litmus test for like, is has this person done their homework? I, I don't want it to be my job to <laughs> no, litmus test these politicians. Like there's a scarcity to show appearances. We make 13 shows a month. We could make 130 a month based on all the people who write to us wanting to come on. And if we're but, right, it would every show would be a politician. <laughs> well, yeah. So like, who do I think who can move it forward? I would have, you know, I would have Ted Cruz on, even though it's not somebody like historically I've been, hugely impressed with but like dude he gets recently Bitcoin. i you know no, he does Holy, i mean talk about it, it's like nuts i heard him talk in in texas at the texas blockchain summit or texas blockchain yeah, yeah. whatever it was nuts he was good. hearing a u.s politician explain i was sitting next to nick carter actually and and nick kind of had the same reaction he was just like holy shit like but he's good for like i see him have an influence and being good for bitcoin so he can come on yeah. the show of course i'd love him on the show because there's a whole bunch of people who will listen just because it's ted cruz yeah a bunch of people aren't gonna listen because it's morgan harper because they've not heard of her right so really the show's then about her and does yeah. she bring anything to the table and she doesn't i've got 13 slots I think Troy Cross brings something to the table because he has an, a thesis around Bitcoin mining that can grow Bitcoin, grow awareness of Bitcoin, and trend us to more greener forms of uh, electricity generation. I absolutely love that. Uh, we get Margot on. Margot isn't the most well-known person. Been behind she should be a lot more well-known. <laughs> she should be. And we get to talk about ideas for progressives, and that's new and interesting. So progressives might come and listen to the show and learn about Bitcoin. Like this broad group of people that can grow Bitcoin, grow Bitcoin use cases, express Bitcoin use cases, and ultimately grow Bitcoin. That's what I want. So no, we're not going to have every politician who just writes to us and says, oh, I'm a Bitcoiner. We're just not going to do it. There's no interest in it. It's like for the same reason when somebody contacts me and says, I work for so-and-so wallet. Can I come on your show? No, because it's not a product show. Yeah, it's a, it's a conversation around macroeconomics, Bitcoin, governance, all these things, things that we want to make the world a better place. They're the conversations. So 
Oh, fuck these politicians. I mean, you're doing it right. Like if you go back and read a lot of the early like cypherpunk writing, like Timothy May, Eric Adam, or Eric Hughes. Like, Eric Adams. <laughs> gosh, that, fuck that guy. Yeah, uh, like Hughes, like Finney. Um, you know, the whole mantra was always like cypherpunks write code. Uh, but if you go like, I've just been sort of deep diving through a lot of this stuff because I frankly admittedly hadn't read it all uh, earlier. I've sort of been texting Aaron Van Weirdom, like send me every cypherpunk writing that you can that in any way relates to advocacy or like political work. And often what you see is like these message boards or these uh, texts and it's like, what should I do? And it's like, if you can write code, write code, build. If you can't write code or you don't write code or you're not building, like advocate, educate spread the word. And so, you know, again, like there's this view that we can just recede from the world around us into technology. And that if we just build these cryptographically enabled technological solutions, we can just ignore the social layer. We can just ignore the real world. And like, yeah, no, you're, you're the real deal because you're like, no, uh, I want everyone to be able to have Bitcoin. And for now that might mean convincing people who haven't been convinced by the dominant Bitcoin narrative that Bitcoin is good. And that doesn't mean that they're bad people or that they're unredeemable or that they shouldn't have the same protections that we're giving ourselves with Bitcoin. Uh, everyone deserves that. And it also means maybe sacrificing and losing part of the audience who won't agree with ideas I'm sympathetic to. I sacrifice them because I want to bring new people in. And we religiously check the stats every single month, every show, we aim for the maximum number of downloads, but while giving as much opportunity to voices on this podcast. So we won't have someone because we think there'll be a low number of downloads. We won't have someone because we don't think they add to the conversation, right? Yeah. But, but if we, you know, when I publish numbers and I say, we've done 20 million downloads or we did 1.5 million this month, someone might look at that and go, all you care about is the numbers. And our reply is, yes. But the reason I care about is because I want, these messages and I want these conversations in front of as many people as possible, as many people as possible, because then I can sell BlockFi ads and buy a Lambo. No, well, I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> no but, if, but, if, but if, seriously though, if, if people are looking at your show and they're saying the value of this show is the extent to which it lines up with what I already believe, then they're morons. Like what, what, what are you, there's 24 hours in a day. How much time are you really going to try to spend trying to just hear people regurgitate the things that you already believe back in your face. Like, yeah. how do you grow as a person? How do you move through debates and decision points as a community, as a country? Like, I don't know. If we're free speech maximalists, you should be happy that you are hearing ideas that make you pissed off. If not yeah. just for the sole reason that you can take them and publicly like eviscerate them. Uh, like every time someone has a bad take about Bitcoin, what ends up happening is that the people will go and, and, and you know, the ones who say, fuck you go, kill yourself or whatever because you hate Bitcoin. Is that helping? No. But the people who are able to sort of take some prominent person who says something stupid about Bitcoin and be like, no, you're actually completely wrong. And here's why. Like, there's a huge value in that. It, even if you're not convincing the person, like, I bet there are Elizabeth Warren followers who have maybe changed their mind on Bitcoin, not because of the top comment being HFSP, but when the top comment is like a well-reasoned, like thought out response, which a lot of times it is because there's so many Bitcoiners who dedicate time to shouting into the wind, it seems like there's so much value in that. You need to be exposed to shit that makes you mad and to shit that you disagree with, because if there's not this public exposition of ideas and counter ideas and arguments, you're just a sheep and so, you're just hooking yourself up to just whatever uh, uh, stream of information you want. And, and it's a drug. 
Well, so uh, tomorrow we're recording a show with Marty Bent. Yeah. I invited him on because I said to him, I said, I've got a great idea for a show. We do the same job, kind of. Fundamentally kind of had the same job. You have interviewing you. Oh, I'm interviewing him. Right. You know, he wouldn't have me on his show. I don't add enough value for his show. But he, um, we essentially do the same job. He has yeah. a Bitcoin podcast. I have a Bitcoin podcast. But we come from fundamentally different angles at a lot of different topics. Um, and I think there's, a, there's reasons for that. I think it's, you can, uh, you can go towards the Jonathan Haidt thing, that, uh, the righteous mind, that like why some people are more conservative, why some are more progressive. I think culturally I'm from Europe where we certainly are more collectivist, whereas yeah. the US is more individual, individualist. There's a bunch of things we, we disagree on. What better thing to do than sit down with him and say, hey, what are all the things like we align on? What are the things we disagree on? Why do we disagree and what can we learn from it? To me, that's the best fucking conversation I can have on this rather than getting somebody on and going, hey, I, I think this. And then going, yeah, I do too. And like I said earlier, and all the <laughs> listeners going, yeah, we do too. But yeah, well, and then we tweet it out and all those people go, yeah, we agree with this because that, that's just this little group of people who might bring some one other person it's in. It's just but, a circle jerk. There's... But, but what might happen with this is a bunch of people might listen because they like Marty Bent and go, oh, Pete's got a good point there. Or some people might come on because they like my show and listen to Marley Bennett and go, oh yeah, Marley's got a point there. And we kind of, we, we expand the horizons that people have around particular topics because at the moment we're in such a fucking divided world. Like there's so much like binary thinking and like arguing and separation when actually we want Bitcoin to bring people together. Yeah. So like that's the best way to do it. Well, and, a huge, and I think Marty's a great person for that too, because mm. he, like you, he cares. Yeah. He gets Bitcoin. He's very smart. Um, and, and he's, I think, capable of having, I mean, he, he disagrees well. And I think that's, a, we've sort of lost this art of like, how do we disagree well? Like we just have such a visceral reaction to ideas that we don't like or agree with when, yeah, we, we've, and I, I do think part of that is because a lot of people no longer believe that we all want the same things. Like if you don't believe that your fellow Americans also care about each other and care about our, our country, our land, like whatever it is, you know, you see them as like less than people. You think you don't think their opinion matters. Like you, you don't disagree well, but I do genuinely like, this is just one of my like most core beliefs is that like most people are good and like have good ambitions for the world and like want things to uh, be better. And so the goal is not to just scream at someone when you, disagree with them it's to figure out what values you share and uh in the case of advocating for bitcoin for example showing how bitcoin leads to those values but yeah if you're just writing people off because of their affinity because someone calls themselves one party over the other you're just ngmi <laughs> like you're just never gonna you're never gonna have any good discourse you're never gonna move anywhere you're yeah it's it's awful no one's gonna care about your ideas yeah. apart from like a few little cheerleaders you have around you it, it doesn't work for me and one one of the the best things that have come out of this is like getting the opportunity to travel the world, meeting a bunch of different people, and understanding the kind of like the eclectic makeup of people in this world, and that come to the like acceptance of the differences that people have. And I think that's like if my sh if I could do one thing for this show is get other people to start accepting that like there's a a whole group of people in this world, they're all different, they've got different opinions, but they should be valued and heard and you should try and understand where they come from. I think that's the like one of the best things I can do with this. I don't see how you could 
advocate for individual liberty, for free speech, and also advocate for a world where, and advocate for hyper-Bitcoinization, if hyper-Bitcoinization means that everyone conforms to believing the exact same things about society. <laughs> like, how is that, how is that like a utopia? Like, how is that something to, to strive for? Um, sounds like hell to me. It sounds like hell. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's important that people disagree. And to the whole point of this, it's important that uh, people find Bitcoin for their own reasons. Um, and I'm excited about the future of that because I think it's happening. It's happening through your show. It's happening through organizations that have like been started recently. Like there's just a growing re realization that like not everyone cares about libertarianism. Not everyone cares about inflation. Not everyone cares about, you know, whatever the sort of talking point du jour is, but everyone cares about something and Bitcoin touches everything. So there's a huge value in finding what people care about, finding what, what they care about and, and showing them how Bitcoin fits into that and makes it better. Uh, like if you don't think that's a good act, then, you know, it's like not wanting someone to have a lifeboat on the Titanic because you just like don't like them. Like, I don't know. I, I think everyone should have a lifeboat. I think that's a really good place to end up. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about the uh, Policy Institute. That's okay. But uh, David, it's been great to get to know you over the last few months. Uh, we first met in Miami. Yeah. When you borrowed my swimming trunks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, that, that uh, sounds really bad. Uh, was it? In, no, no. Did we meet in Nashville before that? Didn't we? No, yeah, we did. We With Stephen McClurg yeah. at bar. And the, yeah, and the other I kind of just keep running into you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it was a pleasure lending you my swimming shorts. And uh, for the record, Peter was out of the room when the no, I was in the room. You were in the I bathroom. Was in the bathroom. Yeah. In the bathroom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just don't want to leave that ambiguous. Like I like you, yeah. I don't like you that way. <laughs> Come on, man. Uh, no, it's it's. Uh, I really enjoy talking to you. Likewise, like, uh, I I think your your depth of knowledge on the broad range of subjects and the way you approach them, I think, is really important i think you're a very important person to bitcoin uh if i can do anything to raise you up so more people spend time talking to you then then i'm glad to do it you're welcome back on the show at any point um and just keep doing what you do like uh, i think it's fascinating tell people where they can follow you though uh i guess twitter uh fuck your twitter it's followed by morons <laughs> yeah i mean uh if people want to see some of the work that i'm doing uh go to btcpolicy.org um, that's kind of the, the think tank that we've sprung up over the past few months um, with the goal of kind of doing a lot of what we've talked about on the show, uh, just like presenting people with good information about Bitcoin, uh, connecting with journalists who have questions about Bitcoin, like taking this view that not everyone is an enemy of Bitcoin. A lot of people just don't get it. So, yeah, we're just trying to arm journalists, policymakers and just like regular people with Stuff that addresses their concerns about Bitcoin, stuff that explains why Bitcoin is good from as many different perspectives as we can. Uh, so yeah, that's at btcpolicy.org. You can check that out uh, or my Twitter. It's just my name, David Zell. All right, man. Well, listen, uh, keep crushing. Stay in touch. We'll keep bumping into you everywhere we go. And look, I'm sure we're going to do this again very soon, brother. And we'll keep deluding ourselves into thinking that our mutual accountability will end our nicotine addiction. Why don't we do it now? Let's put them under the tap. Uh, I God. You want to do it? I'll do it if you do it. Just right now. Like literally we'll go and stop right now. All right. Let's like just water, just like destroy them. Destroy them. You see got a pool we... right there too. I mean, <laughs> then we have to get them out of the pool. We could just put it under a tap. All right. Let's put it under a tap. Let's do it. Or tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, we'll, listen, we'll figure this shit out. All right, man, keep crushing. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 